Welcome to this new Law and Sport podcast. In today's podcast, Ben Rutherford, Senior Legal Counsel and Integrity Unit Manager of World Rugby, speaks to Law and Sport CEO Sean Cottrell about the integrity processes at the Rugby World Cup. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Law and Sport podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Ben Rutherford, the Senior Legal Counsel and Integrity Manager of World Rugby formerly the IRB, which was some time ago now, I believe. Uh, ben, thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much, Sean. I wonder if you could tell me, how did World Rugby go about approaching setting up an integrity unit and integrity structures uh, that were going to be you know, sufficient to deal with the challenges and threats um, that are presented at a Rugby World Cup? Yeah, I, I can. It's something um, we've been working on for some time in advance of, the, of last year's World Cup. And, and of course, we've already started working for the next World Cup in between those tournaments, we have a whole lot of other um, tournaments. And so what that allowed us to do was to test what we were going to do at Rugby World Cup, which is obviously the highest profile event uh, in the sport and also the event which attracts the most interest from, from gambling and thus potentially has the highest integrity risks. Um, we were able to test some of those um, elements uh, onto our other tournaments um, in advance of Rugby World Cup. So basically, the way we approached... Um, World Cup 2015 was, was there were sort of three three strands to the approach, and the first one was making sure we had um, the most up-to-date, appropriate, and robust regulations in place, um, and that um, was brought about through a review of our existing regulation. We already had regulations prohibiting match fixing um, and uh, and gambling by players and so forth, but they had been in place for some time, and obviously the world's moved on. Um, Online gambling, in-play gambling is much more accessible and, and widespread in most jurisdictions, um, in particularly the jurisdiction which Rugby World Cup 2015 was held, um, than it was previously. And we conducted a review of our regulations in consultation with a number of other sports and gambling regulators and policing authorities uh, with experience in this area and updated those regulations to make sure that we had um, all of the the elements prohibited that needed to be prohibited, particularly inside information, um, which was something that wasn't as strictly controlled previously as it is now, and obviously it's it's highly valuable in the in the online um, gambling environment, and also the ability to prohibit um, use of mobile phones on match days for a certain period around matches, um, and that's again very closely linked to that inside information piece. So we we did that exercise that took us um, uh, a couple of years to, to, from the, the point of uh, starting the review and cons- uh, consultation process with all those other sports and then co- uh, consulting with our own unions and, and getting those regulations changed. Uh, and then they were implemented in 2013 and, and applied to all, all of the game from that stage and we were able to um, implement them in our other tournaments and, and uh, test them and make sure that they were fit for purpose, which they were. That's the really- second thing... So one thing I was wanted to pull up on, just just for those who may not be familiar with this space, um, you know, I think it's sometimes taken for granted that people understand how the gambling market works and and some of the threats to integrity. Um, we've, can you just briefly explain why it's important to to have regulations that deal with insider information and, as you said, the restrictions on the mobile phone about what the actual real impact is on that? Absolutely. So um, basically, the the I mean, gambling works on um, works on margins, and it works on um, effectively on likelihoods of outcomes. Um, and so, the market will be framed by a gambling operator based on the information that they have, the best information that they have, and um, and then that's obviously linked then to the money that comes into that market, which will affect 
how much they were willing to expose um, on a certain eventuality. If you have more information than the market uh, operator, naturally enough that gives you an advantage and um, punters, be they professional punters or be they um, amateur sort of so-called mug punters, um, live on that information because that, that, that little piece of information around, let's say, a team selection or an injury um, could have an impact on the market and the likelihood of a particular outcome that you might bet on. Uh, and if, the, if that hasn't been factored into the price, it's effectively a way of, of kind of like insider trading in the corporate world. Um, and it's something that in the current environment uh, or the, the, the environment that's developed with online and in-play gambling where there are so many um, variables and, and opportunities to gamble, those little pieces of information can be very key and they are one of the, um, one of the things that, that um, serious betting operations will try and will try and access if they can because they want that information to give themselves that competitive advantage um, as against the bookmaker or the, or the, um, the betting exchange house uh, that might be hosting the, the bet that they're looking to, to place. Brilliant. Thank, thank, thanks for clarifying that point. And I, I apologise because I interrupted you as you were going no, on to, not, onto, not po- onto point two. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, well, it, it links in, in pretty well actually with point two because Inside information is something that we've really had to hammer into our education of our athletes and our, um, our team personnel and match officials because things can just seem very innocuous to players, to referees, to coaches. They're dealing with information all the time that they may not realise is of great value to people who are um, who are uh, betting on their matches. Uh, and so it's something that ties into the second part after we got the regulation in place, the next thing we had to do was make sure we rolled out education um, because it's it's no good having regulation in place if no one knows what it is and they don't know what the risks are and how they can breach it. So um, we put together sort of two elements to it um, and again we were able to test these in the, the tournaments leading up to Rugby World Cup. So we put together an online education program in conjunction with um, uh, some of our unions and also with the Players Association because obviously that education needs to to hit those players, they need to understand it needs to be delivered in a way that's um, that's manageable for them and and um, can fit within their time schedules and their abilities to understand it in various languages and so forth. And so we partnered with the Players Association and, and a number of our unions to put that education piece together and it's now in 14 languages so that makes it really accessible to the to the playing group and, and hit all the key Rugby World Cup um, targets. And we had a test that got feedback from players and and officials and um, were able to, to make some tweaks and, and that was there and then that's been compulsory for all of our tournaments since 2013. So any player, coach, match official, physiotherapist, whoever it is is accredited with the team or with the match officials has to do that program before they do one of our tournaments. So before we got to Rugby World Cup 2015, quite a lot of the players had actually already done it because they'd been through one of our tournaments and even if they hadn't, we knew um, that the system worked, we'd had good feedback um, and had been well tested. So that was the first part and then the second part um, was we delivered in-person education to each of the teams and the match officials before um, their first match. So when they arrived in the country, we had one of our integrity officers um, go out to their hotel and spend 15 or 20 minutes with them giving them a brief, obviously they've already done the online education which delivers all of the key sort of real detail to them um, uh, and that program takes about half an hour and then the 15 minute session with our integrity officer um, basically allowed them to ask any questions, allowed us to explain some of the issues that have been happening in other sports, the way that athletes in other sports have been accessed by 
know, nefarious figures looking for inside information or for match fixing or, or whatever it might be, um, and to put sort of put them on notice so they're aware of the types of tactics that some of these characters will use, um, and also to allow them to build some rapport with our integrity officers before um, before the tournament kicked off in earnest. Um, they were going to see these integrity officers around um, around the grounds, around the hotels, um, around training venues, and if there was an issue that they they needed to raise, we wanted to make sure that they felt comfortable speaking to our integrity team, and, and that seemed to work pretty well. And then the last thing I was just going to touch on, the sort of operational side of, of implementing all of that, was rolling out um, the integrity officer team, um, which was comprised both of of World Rugby Integrity Unit personnel, and we supplemented it, um, and we were very grateful for it, um, uh, with some integrity personnel from some of the other major sports uh, in the UK and also um, the IOC. Basically, we, we had to cover 48 matches. Um, we had 13 venues in 11 cities, so we needed to supplement our um, team uh, with, a, with, with some numbers for, for the World Cup to cover all of those those venues more grateful that other sports had had the expertise and the availability to to help us. So we were we were very grateful for that. And the other part of the operational element was of course our liaison and, and building relationships in advance with police, with the UK Gambling Commission, um, with our monitoring agency that we we have contracted to do not just Rugby World Cup but all of our uh, other tournaments. So we were well used to the way we worked with them, and we've been able to test all of those systems at some of the other tournaments in the UK. So um, we had UK, uh, UK Gambling Commission and UK Police and our monitoring agencies all um, working on um, some of the sevens tournaments and uh, junior tournaments held in the UK in the, in the lead up to Rugby World Cup so that we, we knew how we would work together, how we would communicate and how we would deal with any issues if, if any issues arose. And so I guess those three elements, starting with regulation, then moving to the education and then the operational stages is, were the keys to, to make it all happen. and and make sure we could protect the tournament as best as as best as we could and 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 as we did so so you make thanks for that you make some really a number of really interesting points there one of which i just out of curiosity um one thing that i think has been particularly successful with the concussion training so f- so far has been that it's mandatory is the um the integrity modules essentially on on uh, match manipulation are they are those are those mandatory that education program as well so you said that it's online because i think with a concussion you can see who hasn't completed that is that a mandatory is that a, is that yeah. is that the same exactly it's a, it's exactly the same approach um and it's effectively it's a similar platform actually the concussion platform and the integrity platform so which is good because it means players um they can use the same login it makes it <coughs> excuse <coughs> excuse me makes it nice and easy for them to access and also the, the format and look and feel of the sites is fairly similar. So it has a consistent um, approach for them. So th- that's exactly right. We've had um, the online education compulsory uh, since 2013 for all of our tournaments. So um, I should know that. 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 I, shame on me because I should know. <laughs> I, should, I should know that. Not, I suddenly thought not, I couldn't remember. Not, not at all. Not at all. Um, so the other, the other point then, so there was, so we had, which I, I really do applaud and I think that I'd like to, you know, it'd be welcomed if other sports were to, uh, and I know there are other sports in, who do similar things, but um, because as you said, as part of education, that's just one process, you know, making sure someone's done an online, uh, so they've got the base information, but you also mentioned, which I thought was building up the rapport with the officials, so there's some trust there, which also seems important. But so when you're planning this out, much like I guess if you're in business and you're putting your business plan together or if you're trying to roll out any project, um, often 
and I should imagine in sport in particular, given that you know most sports aren't quite well as as well resourced as as, as most people would think, um, and particularly with uh, um, an event like the Rugby World Cup, where all of a sudden, which was really interesting, to see, that you have to pull in all these additional resources and from all these other different parties to to, to just deal with the volume of work that, that suddenly just you know explodes over this, this this brief period of time. How much time do you need when you're planning this? When you were planning this out to go right. We've got that. We've got the drafting of our regulations, our first drafts. We're going to spend some time doing that, making sure we've done our research, no doubt, with other sports. Then we're going to go out to the stakeholders, get their feedback, redraft it, and then you're going to start the phases, which you said, which is the you know the education and then the operations side. How do you timeline that out? Um, you know, and was there anything, I guess, from the, from this experience that you thought, you know, what maybe we need to allow a little bit more time uh, in the future for either whether it was education or cons- consultation. Yeah, it's a good question. It probably depends a bit on the different sporting bodies um, and and how they approach it and where they're where they're coming from and, and what their risks are. Because that's the other thing is you've got to do a bit of a risk assessment um, and work out where the where the risks lie and which events are uh, higher risk, which which are lower risk. And obviously, Rugby World Cup has a lot of gambling on it. We didn't see that. Area. We had an independent risk assessment done for us. It's it's not a high risk event, but there is a lot of gambling on it. Um, because it's it's a it's one of the, the major you know, pre- prominent sporting events in the world, so that that does increase the risk profile compared to some of our other you know developmental tournaments and, and other events, for example. Um, in terms of the the timeline that we we ran to sort of get to where we are now, basically our consultation process started back in 2011. Actually, started before the 2011 um, World Cup. So 2011 World Cup, we had a, a probably what I describe as a, a very scaled back version of our integrity program to what we have now simply because um, there were there's sort of a, a couple of factors. One of them is the, the, the online and in-play gambling market hadn't developed to the extent that it, um, that it has now. New Zealand was a different market because it's, a, um, it's not a, a completely open gambling market like the UK uh, is, so that, that presents certain um, challenges in the UK where there are a much broader array of gambling operators, whereas in New Zealand there's only one, which is run by the government, um, or at least in, uh, at the time in 2011 uh, that was the case. Um, uh, so that was the landscape we were dealing with then. Um, so we started that process to prepare for this sort of new developing uh, world whereby gambling is available much more freely um, online, on people's phones and in play in, in many jurisdictions, not every jurisdiction, but certainly in in England and Wales uh, for 2015 World Cup, and so that consultation process probably took took two years, I would say, from from the very starting point of having to go and visit these various sports and and regulators and policing bodies in various countries around the world, um, and then presenting our findings and um, our recommendations to our unions, and then getting these new regulations approved. And of course, coming from um, in, in one respect, rugby has a great advantage in that we haven't had a major corruption crisis. So this has never been something that's been front and centre for um, rugby administrators in the various unions around the world. So that's obviously a, a position of great strength and it's great to be able to make regulations in a um, in a, an environment where you're able to prepare for the future as opposed to be in a position where you're trying to deal with an issue at the same time. But on the other side of that, it means that um, trying to pass regulations which, uh, which give more invasive investigative powers to the governing body, for example, like the ability um, to uh, to request email records and telephone records and bank records, which is what you need um, to be able to investigate corruption offences without that 
you're simply a toothless tiger. Um, it's a harder sell when there isn't an impending uh, issue or there hasn't been a, a series of corruption issues. So that, that process of educating our, our membership and, and getting everyone um, to understand where the risks were, albeit they're not present risks in, in rugby, they weren't at that time. We weren't dealing with a, a major corruption case and trying to upscale our regulations at that time. But trying to make sure everyone could understand that this is something that's an issue um, in other sports and could become an issue in our sport simply because it's it's like all sports now they're all gambling products to a certain extent whether we like it or not um, and so that process probably took about about two years um, but at the same time we'd already started our consultation with the UK um, government uh, entities and we already had our monitoring agency um, on board and we're monitoring some of our other events and the Nature Species 7 series and so forth and and we were able to start that planning, but yeah, it, it probably is really a four a four year cycle to get from a position where you're at, you have a kind of base regulation uh, and a, a basic um, uh, capacity in the area to having a really strong capacity and a very robust regulation and having all the education that underpins it. It, it does take time. It, it took us about four years. Well, and it's, it's a good point you make actually that, um, and it's something that. I know I can be guilty of sometimes. You, you look at what you compare sports, and you go, "Well, well these guys have done it. Why, why haven't these other? You know, I, I won't mention mention names specifically, but you know, um, yeah, there are a whole variety of sports that that, that are run by uh, you know international federations around the world, and you go, "Why aren't they doing it?" But you forget sometimes that it's much easier if you're being proactive rather than have to be reactive to the situation because it presents a whole different dynamic, in, even, including the um, discussions with the the various stakeholders, such as the player unions. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So so, so so when you look back over the look back now and, and no doubt you've already as you said you've already started planning which I guess is great because with those those sort of big cycles and and having the ability to, to to plan well in advance you can you know hopefully update your systems and timelines and basically replant the um the, the framework you used previously what would you say now having had some time to reflect on it was was the success of 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 um you know your in, I guess your integrity plan um, if you, I'm not sure what you'd call it. Actually, is it is it called an integrity plan or? Um... Yeah, we, and we we call it uh, our integrity program, but it's yeah, effectively it's a it's a yeah, effectively a plan, as you say. Yeah. So how how would you say that you know in hindsight you know what were the sort of positives or lessons le- and I guess lessons learned um, from from your, your, the last cycle? Yeah, I, I mean the key the key objective of of an integrity program to to protect a tournament from corruption is whether or not it achieved that objective. And um, to the best of our knowledge, and according to the independent report from the, the UK Gambling Commission, the tournament was free of corruption, um, and that obviously is, is 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 the key achievement for us, and, and is is very pleasing because it if if we didn't achieve that, it. it it doesn't matter to a certain extent how much else we've we've done. That that would be um, would be something we'd have to we'd have to reflect on. So thankfully, th- that that is that that's the the key achievement, and we're very pleased with that. Um, I think there's a couple of other things that are we're really happy with. Um, one of them is the way the integrity officers interacted inter, um, with with the players and the officials, because although we've been delivering integrity education and we've had um, a sort of smaller deployment of integrity officers at some of our sevens tournaments and junior tournaments and so forth. It's the first time where where our Rugby World Cup players at this sort of really elite end of the game have had interactions with 
World Rugby Integrity Officers on a very regular basis. So getting the education, seeing them in the hotels, seeing them around the change rooms at, at uh, venues, um, seeing them around the transport and training venues and so forth. Um, and their willingness when they said, because obviously they've just received this education and been told, be aware of uh, you know, people trying to get inside information from you. And, and we found them very willing to come up and speak to our integrity officers either on their own or through their management. And so there was a person in the hotel who asked me a question around the lineup. It may have been nothing, but you should just check it. And that really filled us with great confidence because it, it meant to us that the players had, had grasped the message. They had confidence in our integrity officers. They, they felt they were credible. Um, and they felt that, that we, as the integrity team, had the players' best interests at heart, which was basically we're trying to protect them from any of these outside influences who might seek to corrupt them. And, as unlikely as it is, it's it's something that has is on the radar because of, of issues that have happened in other sports. And so our athletes responded very well to it. Uh, we, we weren't necessarily sure how they would respond because unlike athletes in other sports, they haven't been inundated with um, you know corruption scandals or it's not something that would be necessarily so front of mind. But they did seem to pick up the message really quickly and seem to really buy into the, the kind of working together uh, approach that we tried to foster with them. and, and and that rapport with the integrity officers starting from um, the initial education session. So that was really pleasing and um, something that we'll certainly continue on with for 2019. That's great. I, I think that's a, a great way to, to, to prove that there's been a learning outcome, isn't there? Because, you know, sometimes, you know, we, uh, and whether you're you know in sport or whenever you're at a big corporate, you can do some sort of compliance training and other stuff and you, you know, can tick an online box, for example, and then no one ever checks with you to see if you actually truly understood what was going on. Um, so it's great to see that the players are taking those actions. And on that point, I think rugby is quite um, good in that regard. In the play, like I know domestically, uh, I talk from that experience over here. Obviously, the RFU and the Rugby Players Association have a really good dialogue, um, which is fantastic to see. Okay. And, it seems, and it seems seems quite uh, productive. And I think that it seems to be um, relatively consistent in rugby. How much? Or how much would you encourage? Because um, you know, in some sports and other some regions around the world, sometimes the the, the players or athletes can be marginalised. How how important do you think it was to actually um, have the engagement with either the unions and or, or and their members? I think in terms of the, the players' associations and also clearly in this area, um, unlike say anti-doping, for example, referees are, are key as well because they are potentially a, a, a key target um, for people who seek to corrupt any sport, um, both match officials and athletes would, would potentially be targets uh, for those people. Getting their buy-in is, is essential and I think the, one of the, the real successes of, of our program has been our ability to, to partner with the Players Association from an early stage. Uh, obviously we, we built the education program but we couldn't build it without the, the players' input because it has to be focused at, at that particular group, at that demographic. It's, it can't be aimed at lawyers. It can't be aimed at administrators. It, it has to be very clearly aimed at the playing group and match officials and, and broader entourage around that, coaches and, 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 and other support staff, but particularly the key people to understand are the players and the referees because, they're, they're, first of all, they're the biggest group um, of users of the system, but also they're the, the key people in the sport. Um, and so I would uh, I would say one of the, the things that I would recommend is if if possible and if the relationships exist within other sports, 
teaming with the, the Athletes Association or the Athletes Union to produce this education um, is is absolutely essential and it, it's been a success for us because it meant, and, 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 and you know, as I'm speaking from per, personal experience or having presented some of these integrity sessions, the in-person ones to teams, I can't imagine anything worse than standing up in front of a team um, and getting feedback that that we don't understand the message. Or. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a hor- horrible experience, and I'm sure it does happen. Yeah. Though. But I think it's a, good, it's a really, it's a really good point you make. And from a marketing perspective, you know, as a as a, as a legal educator, you know, which is what we do, um, and also for when we're looking at marketing our content to to, to, to particular groups that is targeted at, whether it be the players, lawyers, in-house counsel, etc. I totally agree with you that you know making sure that message is tailored to that audience is so important to actually um, making sure that they engage with, with with the information that's being put forward. So I think that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I know that you're really busy and thank you so much because I know you've been travelling all around the world, left, right and centre at the moment. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time out um, of, of what is an unenviable uh, busy schedule at the moment. Um, but you, one thing I did want to touch on which is a related point, is that there's an integrity uh, conference that World Rugby are putting on in November. I just wondered if you wanted to just you know, br- briefly give that a bit of a plug and, and say what the objectives are for. Yeah, it's something um, we we have a biennial um, World Rugby conference and exhibition, um, which is being held this year in London and was held two years ago also in London. Um, and before that was in Dublin. And uh, around the conference and exhibition, there are a number of other conferences. There's been a medical conference and other um, uh, working groups and so forth. And one of the areas that we felt that we could, uh, well, I guess we were well placed in some respects um, to to, uh, to to address was holding a, a conference based uh, sort of focused on integrity in sport. Um, obviously, there are there are other conferences out there, but um, we felt because it's through, I guess through our experiences, but also through our contacts in the industry, we could put together quite a, an attractive program and um, so we've managed to put together um, a, quite, a, quite an interesting list of speakers from bodies such as the IOC and the NFL and uh, the FA and, and various other um, elite sporting bodies around the world and also regulators. We've got um, the Chief of Enforcement of the Nevada Gambling uh, Control Board uh, coming as well to, uh, to give a presentation. Um, he obviously uh, deals with some very high-end and sophisticated match-fixing operations looking to launder their money through Las Vegas. Um, so we've got some excellent speakers um, coming along um, from various sports um, and regulatory backgrounds, policing, uh, and the conference um, is, is, I think it'll be very, very interesting indeed. And we'll obviously be doing a presentation on on rugby as well. And so um, some persons who are interested will hear, on, uh, hear from people from various sports and various backgrounds, um, all centered upon um, integrity in sport and how we can protect it, um, what what the best practice models are. So we'll also have the ICC there and Interpol and the uh, UK Gambling Commission. So it's on the 14th of November. Uh, it's in London at the Hilton uh, Metropole uh, and tickets are available through um, World Rugby's website. If, if probably the easiest way is for people just to Google World Rugby Sports Integrity Forum uh, and they'll find the access there through uh, through World Rugby's website, which is worldrugby.org. Yeah, and we've got we've got a link to it on our events page as well. So if you get stuck, um, if your Google search lets you down, um, <laughs> you can go to our events page and get a link through. It, I, I applaud you for doing that because I think it's uh, it's great, and I know that you know there's a lot of these type of events that kind of take place, but they're not necessarily in a, in a more public forum. So I think it's great that there's um, 
you know you're bringing together the various stakeholders and I know that there's always you you know colleagues in in sport and integrity are always uh, liaising and discussing things but I think it's good to focus the minds for a day or so just to um, you know a couple of evenings to uh, really hopefully get some good outcomes so thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure speaking to you Ben and um, yeah wish you all the best with the with the travels over the next few days and um, I look forward to seeing you in November. Sean, thanks very much. We'll, we'll see you there in November. Looking forward to it. Brilliant. Thanks. Sadly, that's all we have time for for this show. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, for all your latest sports law updates and information, you can go to lawandsport.com or follow us on Twitter at lawandsport. Go to our YouTube channel, follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also go to our website to sign up for our weekly email. Thanks again for tuning in.